Welcome to the Do Good Radio Hour with Bluegrass Community Foundation. Here at Bluegrass Community Foundation, we believe doing good inspires good. It's the gift that keeps on giving. The intention behind the show is to encourage you by sharing the undeniable good happening within our community. Tune into the Do Good Radio Hour every Monday at 2 p.m. to hear about the good that is the heartbeat of our community and how you can get more involved. On this episode, we are excited to celebrate our diverse fund holders. We will hear two stories from fund holders, one being a fiscal sponsorship. Starting your own charitable fund is an easy way to achieve your philanthropic goals and streamline your giving. If after listening to these stories, you feel inspired to look into how to start a fund, please visit our website at bgcf.org under the giving tab. Thanks for listening. The first story we are going to hear about is from the Jennings and Associates Financial Advisors Fund. The fund was established to support relief efforts after the tri-state tornado devastated Western Kentucky in December of 2021. And this fund aids in the recovery, and that's what its plans are to do as well. So I'm super excited to be here with Kristen Lynch, the Senior Wealth Advisor of Jennings and Associates Financial Advisors. She's going to help share the intention behind the fund, the impact she has seen and hopes to see, and the importance of using what you have to make a difference. So hey, Kristen, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time and working with us for this fund. It's really important, and we appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So first and foremost, just tell us about you and your position at Jennings and Associates. Sure. So my name is Kristen Lynch and I have been with the firm Jennings and Associates since we started and we are an independent firm located in Western Kentucky. So uh, we have a great team of, of nine people and we are all from the area and that's why this tornado, um, when it hit, it was December 10th and it really affected all of us in a personal way, a few of us lived nearby and a few were affected with friends and family. So it was a real eye-opening, just kind of catastrophic experience that, that really um, shook us, that made us feel like we needed to do something. So as a financial firm, uh, our goals uh, are to always help people financially first and foremost, but it really set out a cause to kind of rally the community that we serve in um, a most thoughtful, strategic way, uh, using funds if we could. Yeah, I don't know if you were a part of this discussion, but how did this fund get started? Tell us about that. Did yeah. you around and you were all talking about it, or was it the person who came to everyone else? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, so we actually came up with a um, kind of a joint effort. We had immediately, you know, when something like this happens, we just immediately say, how do we help? But you also see there's so many people and we're so grateful and blessed around the world that just showed up for these areas in a big way. And that was really impactful to see. So then we took a step back and said, how do we help long-term? How do we make sure that we're not just giving funds right now, which which are needed and they were needed, but they were, you could see that was being served. Um, the churches and the communities and the Red Cross and the big organizations were doing the immediate needs. We really felt like in a couple of months or maybe even years, some of these little towns might be forgotten. And our first discussion as a team was how do we help long-term? And that was a group discussion. Our owner, Keith Jennings, uh, immediately said we have to establish something that other clients 
and friends and family can get involved in with us. So instead of just taking our nine people and saying, how can we help? It was more of how do we involve the 500 families across the nation that we serve in a bigger way? Is, is there something bigger we could do? Um, and that led us to forming the fund in a charitable way so that we can be thoughtful and strategic about how we help. I love that. And I'm assuming that's also how you connected with BGCF. I was wondering how that connection happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was a really great um, thing because as, as the community started to jump in and help, you see on social media and you see on the news of all these charitable funds that you can donate to. And we had so many people begin reaching out to us saying, which one's legitimate? Um, where should we send funds and how should we send funds? Well, we felt the same way. How, how can we establish a fund that serves as a nonprofit, which we are not familiar with. We didn't have a background. We've maybe served in boards in a nonprofit way, but had no idea how to establish how to be, um, you know, compliant and legal in that work. So we, we had heard about um, your organization and just knew this was not only reputable, but it was large. You know, the, it was really an easy conversation. The first call was with Lisa and uh, she immediately made me feel so comfortable that it was a very established, thoughtful way. And they just knew how to take us from, we don't know anything to the funds established within like a week. It was unbelievable. So the ease of the organization just made it really easy. And then to also know the reputation that stands behind um, just made it really easy to get it done. And I, I think these things seemed really intrusive and complicated when you would look it up online. But when I talked um, to, to the organization, it just made it so simple. I don't know if daunting is the right word, but then it became like once you realize that you know, starting a fund can just start with one person or one group of people and it can, it can happen. Like we can make it happen. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. That was really kind of, we honestly, the first conversation I went to our owner after talking um, with Lisa and I said, uh, we can get this done in like two days. Yeah. And he was like, no, we can't. There's no way. And, and we just kept going, well, I think we can like this, this seems real. Um, so it was kind of funny because we just couldn't believe it could be done so quickly, but it was clear that you had already established um, a process to make this happen. And, you know, processes, uh, like checklists are my love language. So it was clear that you guys had a process in the system that worked and it was efficient and it was quick. And that's really what we needed. We needed something to be quick. Um, to get people to engage in this because they were wanting to place their dollars by the end of the year and yeah. that needed to be done. That's what I was thinking too. It's obviously important for this type of fund for it to be quick and have the turnaround. Yeah. The relief efforts need to happen quickly. And that's kind of leads into my next question, which I know you said the fund is focused on longevity, but I didn't know if you could tell us about a story with your fund or, or plans for your fund that you would love to see happen and where the funds are going to go and be dispersed. Yes. This was, this has been, and still is a very large topic. What's the best way in which to use these funds um, to the community? And it was impacted in really three different areas um, that were connected to in a deep way, Mayfield, Princeton, and the Lakes area of Marshall County. We have friends and family clients in every one of those areas. Um, so at first it was easy to say, I know somebody personally that could benefit, but we really wanted to be bigger 
than that. And we wanted to be more impactful. So we have established uh, what we call an advisory board. And it's made up of local community leaders, uh, church leaders, clients that we have, charitable givers of the community. And we put those people together along with a few of us in the firm to just really open up the discussion of what they and we believe as a community will serve these people best. So this advisory board is really going to serve to um, take inventory of what the communities need. And then we plan to work with a few churches and other nonprofit organizations on the best way to, to disseminate these funds out that's going to make a big impact. So we could see doing things like paying people's deductibles or maybe paying people to rebuild because right now they're so caught up in the cleanup and their displaced housing and the food and water. Um, Those immediate needs while it's catastrophic are being met in a lot of ways. So we just wanted to make sure, you know, six months from now when the media isn't talking about the tornado damage, when can we step in and how big could we step in at that point and then see what the needs are then? Cause I, I think, you know, unfortunately these events happen and they're almost forgotten about in six months to a year, except for those affected. And we just don't want that to happen. So we want to play a role in that part of the rebuild is our thoughts. I love that. And it's, that's very unique. I don't think I've ever really heard of, you know, just me never having been affected by something like a tornado or something. I never thought, oh, what, what about a year from now? And we're still having to work through a lot of the damage from this. Well, and that's, that's exactly, we have had another tornado in the area in Illinois, which is very close. And a few people that we spoke to said, you know, it's not the right now while it's horrible, but it's really six months to a year later. That's when people have forgotten about you and you're trying to rebuild. And unfortunately, there was people without insurance. There was people that really just suffered um, injuries or job loss. You know, maybe they didn't lose their home, but they lost the business that was their job. So those types of things are where we want to make sure we're not just helping in the immediate needs of providing bottled water. While those are important, we want to make sure that it's something, a fund, that can last and, and we can continue to build for the communities and serve in maybe a myriad of different ways. Cause what Mayfield might need, Princeton might need something differently or the lakes area might need something different. So we've assembled people from each of those areas and leaders to help us um, in deciding how to use those funds in a real thoughtful way. Yeah, that's, that's so great that you said that because my next question, this was just one I just popped into my head. I didn't know if through this fund you have created community partners or realized on profits that you never knew before, or like leaders that have come up that you've connected with and it's kind of created like a little synergy of organizations yeah. together. It really has. And it's been pretty, um, it's pretty heartwarming to see how people will come together in situations of devastation. It's not something you ever want to go through clearly. And I, you know, I've, none of us personally lost, lost a house or our, our primary residence. So I can't imagine the trauma. I really can't. Um, but we had one guy that works in our office that was there the night of in the rain, in the devastation, and he's pouring people out of buildings. So I think once you impact something like that, the friendships that are made through the process of helping these people you really see people step up and we've had a few clients, especially um, calling from all over the country 
um, in Alabama and Kansas City saying, how can I help? Um, and of course, when they're, when they're states away, the first thing they think of is, let me put my dollars to power for you. How can I support you in a way I can't be there to, you know, rebuild and drive a nail, but I can send you dollars that we trust you guys to deploy. And that's where we've made really good um, synergies with other leaders and organizations and churches around that can provide clarity as to, okay, this group needs this, and this would be a great place to send these funds for this reason. So it's more helpful for us that we've expanded the knowledge to this advisory board to make sure that we're getting a full picture of what's needed and, and taking their advice, you know, maybe they've been through it, but if they've also served in a nonprofit before they understand maybe some of the things that we might not know. So it's really important to just have that intelligence um, and that community around you to help provide advice. Yeah. And it seems like you all have a really great trajectory, you know, where you want this fund to go and you've done a great job explaining it, but just kind of getting the, to the core of what we're talking about for one of our last questions here. I just want to ask what would be your advice for those wanting to start a fund maybe or other firms or other nonprofits listening to this and then maybe turn that into what's your advice on people who are just wanting to make a difference or make an impact or give? Well, I think the first part of starting a nonprofit was I've served in a capacity in the community on nonprofit boards when they've already been established so the thought of starting a nonprofit was really intimidating. And I think the first advice I would tell people is if you really research and, and seek out people who've already done it before, you'll find that it's not near as complicated. If you find a good partnership like we have with you guys, with, with your firm, it's been able to make this a very, such an easy process that we really felt like we could focus on the client's rebuilding and what the fund needed to serve and not the technicalities and compliance of how to set up a fund. Um, and I think that's exactly what people are looking for. Anytime you want to make an impact or set up a nonprofit, um, you know, people are going to quick fixes like a GoFundMe. And I see the point, but it also doesn't serve for us as financial advisors. We're also thinking of, okay, well, what about tax efficiency? What about, if we donate from an IRA and it can be done in a tax efficient way for our clients, but they also can make a donation, we really need a nonprofit status. Um, so it can't be a quick fix. It can be more impactful if it's long-term and if it's well thought with a partnership um, that like the, this alliance has allowed us to really focus on what's important here and not get caught up in the minutia of what does the IRS need and how do we get it done? Cause I think people tend to just say, never mind. Um, it, it's too much work. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, it was really nice because we didn't have to worry about that. Um, and for anyone that's wanting to make an impact, I think for us, we wanted to act quickly, but we also wanted to be really more thoughtful about how, we served. Um, we, we see so many people jumping in to help and we love that. We all did that in some form, you know, we're taking donations and we're helping out with, with what we can physically. Um, but we want to make an impact long-term and, and that's really what I would say for anyone wanting to, to make an impact in devastated terms like this. It's about 
the long-term rebuild of these communities. And these small towns are what we're, it's where we're from. It's our heart and soul. It's what's made us. It's, we're all an independent firm here. So we're locally owned. We're, we're an independent. So we know how important that independence is. And we just hope that as people reach out and make bigger impacts, whether it be nonprofit or not, that we're just focused on what the community needs and not maybe what we need as individuals. What does the community need from us and how can we serve them to the best of our ability? So, you know, for us, it was um, a devastating event. We hope and pray we will never see anything like that. You, You never want to experience what these people went through and experience that evening Uh, But what's come out of it is pretty glorious when you see the community come together, how they're supporting each other, all of the the groups and organizations that are being formed because of it. So I think they'll come out stronger at the end of this, and hopefully we can make a small impact in that. You have been fantastic and just really showing the story of how you can use a fund as a tool to really make a difference. and having it be a storyteller of the why behind what you're doing. And you've just done a great job and thank you so much. Last thing here, I just want you to shout out where people can find more about your firm or perhaps your fund or anything where people can find out more about what you just talked about. Absolutely. So um, our website is JenningsFinancialAdvisors.com. We're located in Western Kentucky and Paducah and we serve across the nation. So the best way to reach us is definitely through our website. And then you can find our fund on the BGCF website as well under Jennings and Associates Charitable Foundation. And we hope to you know, continue this foundation throughout so we can maybe continue years from now. We still have it open and we're still serving the communities in whatever way they need. So we appreciate you guys so much for your help. And as we've built through this, it's just been invaluable to have the knowledge, experience, and service from um, BGCF. So we couldn't thank you guys enough. And we appreciate you taking the time to put this together. Rachel Bellin is here with us today. She is the managing partner and co-founder of the Kentucky Student Voice Team. And she is here to share the story about the origins of this awesome organization and the fun. Hey, Rachel, explain to our listeners who might not know what the Kentucky Student Voice Team is and what it does. Happy to. Thanks for having me on here. So for those of you just listening, you should know that behind me, um, I have a background of a lot of students from the Kentucky Student Voice Team. I am the managing partner, but the emphasis is on managing and supporting students because this is a youth-led organization. So the Kentucky Student Voice Team is an independent nonprofit physically sponsored by Bluegrass Community Foundation And we comprise about 100 self-selected students from across the state who who work to co-create more just and democratic schools and communities as education, research, policy, and advocacy partners. That mission statement, by the way, was workshopped by high school students. Uh, So it it really fits perfectly uh, in terms of what we do. When I say that we are youth-led, I mean that we are youth-led. In the last, uh, we've had a very interesting journey to our physical sponsorship. We were a program um, of the Pritchard Committee, another statewide um, education advocacy group um, that's adult-led for about eight years before we spun off a year ago to become more fully independent and youth-led. And um, I'll also say that the, the, the initial genesis of 
This group um, happened in 2012 when a team of Central Kentucky High School students worked with me to make the pitch um, to the parent organization that um, young people as primary stakeholders of our schools needed to be a partner in the work to improve our schools. Yeah, chalk it up to Central Kentucky high school students for seeing this vision through over almost a decade now. Pretty incredible stuff. The concepts of this organization, it is so unique. And we were kind of talking about this before the podcast started, but the series we're in right now with the Do Good Radio Hour is a lot about our fund holders. And we just have such a diverse array of different fund holders. And what makes yours so unique and awesome is that it's a fiscal sponsorship. So if you could kind of go into what that is and how your group has benefited from that. Absolutely. So the Bluegrass Community Foundation sponsors uh, a number of um, really startup nonprofits like us. Um, we are unique in that we had been incubating and cooking uh, for eight years, as I said before, we, we spun off to become uh, more independent. And the Bluegrass Community Foundation, um, we, looked at, we were looking for a physical sponsor. We did not yet have our 501c3. We could not stand on our own yet. We couldn't accept um, foundation grants or, or individual donations to support our work until we had a fiscal sponsor. And by um, having that relationship with the Bluegrass Community Foundation, and they were from the first second were so supportive of our move and in helping set us up and guide us, um, by having that relationship, we were able to immediately accept um, uh, foundation uh, contributions um, and, and contributions for individual donors because their um, 501c3 tax status applies to us uh, as, um, as a sponsor E, uh, if that's the word. Um, and also, um, Bluegrass Community Foundation helps us with our tax forms, helps us disperse checks and payments. Um, and there's a lot of moral support that comes with this relationship. Uh, we benefit from the credibility of 100 years of good stewardship from the Bluegrass Community Foundation. Like that rubs off on us. We, um, a lot of people, you know, we, we were applying to big foundations uh, for support. And um, there's a lot of credibility that came instantly with having a very strong and stable partner our physical sponsor the Bluegrass Community Foundation. That was no small thing and it was no accident that we chose Bluegrass Community Foundation for that purpose. Yeah, I love your story, as I said before, because it is so unique and just attaining that 501c3 status, it can be very difficult. And so I love that you're sharing your story specifically because I feel like a lot of our listeners maybe have gone through a certain similar story as you or in there they're in it right now and so i just want to you to tell your story of how you made that connection with bgcf as you said it's a great partnership and relationship in terms of the credibility but i'm just interested i'm always interested in just how this connection happened how did you find out about it how did you make that connection just so others can be like hmm, i want to be just like them well we i mean i live in central kentucky i live in lexington uh, we are a statewide organization but headquartered here um, so anyone who's paying attention has heard of the Bluegrass Community Foundation. Um, the organization is out there doing good in the community all the time. The Good Giving campaign I was deeply involved with when I was part of 
the other organization um, in, uh, from its inception. So I knew very well how beautifully um, the organization handled um, nonprofits and community groups and funding and everything. They were sophisticated. Yes. So we did look all around the country and we actually heard from a lot of other uh, groups around the country who wanted to be our fiscal sponsor. And it's pretty cool that the one we chose and the strongest one we found was right in our backyard here in Lexington. Yeah, that's great to hear. And But now, now that we know kind of the bones of what's going on, I want to get into more of what you all do and the impact you have. And I bet it's so exciting working with high school and college students, if I'm correct, and just in terms of knowing the trajectory of where our society is going, so to speak. So you have a first insight into that. How have yeah. you seen the impact of your work affect the students you serve and also in turn our community and our school system? Yeah, I love that two-pronged question, um, Kaden, because a lot of times when people uh, look at a youth-serving organization, they, they immediately go to, well, how many youth do you serve? And what they really mean is how many youth benefit directly from your program? And we have never measured our impact that way exclusively that's almost a byproduct of what we do our focus is on uh, supporting students to reach students other students uh, throughout the state and that's a really important distinction because even though we're self-selected uh, we have no barrier to entry we have no interview process no litmus test no grade point average no application even though we do that we have over 10 years historically every year just drawn uh, with very little recruiting, just drawn the most high-flying students who do really well in school. And what we found in, in all of these years of doing this work is that these are students who are doing well in school, who are connected, who are, are pretty well resourced, relatively speaking. They skew that way. They skew high achieving. So ultimately, when we talk about the Kentucky Student Voice Team, we're not really talking about their voices. They are the people charged with reaching the voices of the least heard in our school system. So what that looks like, our students, uh, our students and our team strategizing about ways to amplify and elevate um, the voices of more marginalized student populations. That could look like students from rural parts of the state or uh, targeting low-income students. We've We've targeted um, students, um, you know, who might have disabilities and are struggling in school, homeless students. We are really looking for uh, students who have a lot to say, but are, are least able to, to say it often or are not listened to um, as much. Maybe they don't have the resources to get to a place to be heard, to testify, to write an op-ed. Um, but our job is to amplify and elevate their voices. So I would say of the 100 or so students that are members of our team at any given year, they in turn are reaching 30 to 40 times their number a year, um, at least, um, because they're writing prolifically, they're speaking prolifically, but the most important thing they're doing is listening prolifically. They are going out all the time and talking uh, by roundtables, by interviews. They're talking to students across the state and they are harvesting um, voices and stories, stories and statistics, um, and sharing that across a, a thousand platforms. Um, and I can be really specific about what that looks like. Um, 
Just in the last year, in one single year, the team has managed one independent blog and one independent podcast producing uh, stories uh, by and about students in education um, very, very routinely. Um, they have coached research teams comprising other students in um, to conduct school climate audits in four geographically diverse middle and high schools to identify ways uh, that students and staff can make schools safer, more inclusive, and more engaging. Those audits involve close to 2,000 middle and high school students. Um, they've conducted one statewide race, ethnicity, and school climate survey, um, generating responses from nearly 11,000 middle and high school students from nearly every one of Kentucky's 120 counties. That study um, they are analyzing still, and we'll be releasing results from that uh, next month. Um, and that'll in turn reach a lot of other people, right? So policymakers and decision makers, um, they have led, these are high school students teaching other high school students about um, education justice writing. So they're teaching journalism to other students and we have been um, publishing uh, on our blog and our podcast, many, many stories from students who are not on our team um, about education justice issues. They have led, um, they led one legislative campaign that was successful to protect the student seat on the Kentucky Board of Education. They've published their research and commentaries in nine local outlets and four national ones, including the Harvard Social Impact Review and the Center for American Progress. Um, with, I'll just give you a couple more because they're creative. You can hear these are not your normal measurements, right? right. So with the other youth-led organizations across the country, they filed one amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court to protect student speech outside of school, and that, that passed through the Supreme Court. Um, they presented their work 36 times locally and nationally, including to the Kentucky Civil Rights Institute, Kentucky Association of School Superintendents, Grantmakers in Education, the Aspen Institute, and the National Association of School Boards. Um, and then they've been featured 57 times by local and national media outlets, including by the Washington Post, Teen Vogue, NBC News, and the 74 million. These are high school students who are full-time high school students who are doing this as a side hustle and having real impact in Kentucky and nationally. And it's happening right here in central Kentucky. It's like the epicenter. I want to ask you, I'm just curious as you were talking. So you have these teams across Kentucky. I think you said 100 students. Yes. So do you have a, a mass meeting where everyone comes together? Is that yeah. over? So we do have general monthly meetings that are virtual, um, that are well attended. Um, and then we organize ourselves and communicate pretty much 24-7 on Slack, um, which is like a group texting app that that you know fortune 500 companies use that is incredibly powerful for organizing with young people um, in real time um, we have a general channel and then we have about 30 side channels um, and all of those side channels are facilitated by young people organizing other young people we have a team of about uh, of 12 students who are paid project leads um, who in turn have budgets because um, we have a participatory budgeting process. So they, in turn, compensate other students on their project teams, and they help determine with their group, we're all about co-design, how to, how to do compensation that's fair. We know we're setting a market rates for students being paid in work like this. So, you know, these conversations are open to debate and discussion about how not only the amount 
that students should be compensated. We definitely believe students should be. It's a matter of equity. Rich students shouldn't be the only ones who can participate in social justice work. But we also want students to figure out how to compensate other students. Is it just by the hour? Is it by the deliverable? Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to do this. Even if adults tend to do it one certain way, there might be other ways we can think about that work in the space. So every element of this, the programming, the way we structure ourselves, the organization, the output, it's all co-designed uh, by young people. I love that. And I love what you said earlier about how these students have stories to tell and they tell the stories. And this podcast is all about telling stories as well. So I know this will be very hard, but I want you to try to pick one story that is particularly inspiring that has come out of your experience at the Kentucky Student Voice Team that you could share with us. Yeah, sure. There are so, so, so many. Um, but I would say the most powerful things that come out of this work is when students can combine their lived experience with expertise, with knowledge. Um, that's beyond their lived experience. So um, I'll give an example from, um, from the recent past um, that really illustrates this, I think, and that is we, we had a student from Eastern Kentucky uh, who was with us for a couple of years, um, and she at first, she didn't speak for the first three years pretty much. She would somehow sometimes make it to Lexington. We'd have her on calls virtually. We even sent her um, a camera so she could participate. I mean, from the hollers of Eastern Kentucky, this was this girl. And, um, and we learned from her that she had a really compelling personal story, which she started to share later. And that was about the struggle she had to afford college, to even consider herself college material. Um, she had just a lot of hurdles um, uh, that people in Central Kentucky who are part of our team did not have. From this relationship we had with her, we uh, wrote a book. Um, uh, we spent a year going across the state. Uh, we interviewed um, her peers in her high school, and she was part of that team that did, conducted the interviews. Um, and then we went across the whole state and interviewed hundreds of other students who were struggling to go to college. Um, we produced this book called Ready or Not, Stories from Students Behind the Statistics, um, and published that. And, um, and the team presented that all over Kentucky and all over the country for about two years. But then this turned into political action. So this one girl's story, and she was one of the key speakers who could speak to uh, the inequities involved in the post-secondary transition process, um, we parlayed that into legislative action. And so um, this team organized what uh, they dubbed the Powerball Promise, and it was to draw attention to uh, the fact that Kentucky lottery money was being diverted from supporting needs-based college scholarships like it was supposed to. And this had been going on for about 10 years. Linda Blackford at the Herald Leader had been writing about it all the time too, and it just was falling on deaf ears. And so our team realized that the thing that was missing from the conversation of this seemingly no-brainer legislation was student voice. That was the unique value add. People were not picturing real students. We organized a rally in, in the Rotunda in Frankfurt, featured students from all over the state from our book, um, talking about um, the, the struggle to afford college. So uh, we featured that um, 
and uh, it drew a lot of media attention locally and um, the bill um, that we were working on ultimately passed. Legislators were citing the Powerball promise that they, and they were saying once it passed that they had kept the Powerball promise as though it was just in the lexicon. This, so that's just one example out of like a gazillion. The story you just described is exactly what BGCF is all about, the power of one. That one young girl's story, look what it became. It became this whole initiative and it reached all these high levels of huge impact. And I just really think that that's truly the nucleus of what we're all about here at BGCF. So I love, I love that story. And you've well, done one post, one post note on that. So this particular student went on a full ride to Wellesley College and graduated. See, that is just really <laughs> That is the perfect story to share. So I like to leave these podcasts with a call to action, to leave the listeners with a call to do something in response to what they've just listened to. So last question here before we go, why should people and students and listeners, whoever may be listening to this, get involved, whether that be in their community or in their school, what's the importance of joining something like this? Yeah, so one of our mantras is that the Kentucky Student Voice Team is all about doing democracy. Um, and I am a former social studies teacher in addition to a former English teacher. And one of my hashtags is guerrilla social studies because I firmly believe we get the democracy we deserve and students are critical stakeholders in the work and the function of our public schools as well as our democracy at large. Um, so the answer to that for me is we can't afford not to have young people engaged in this kind of work in caring about their, the larger community and their public schools. Um, we need young people. We cannot wait until they are quote unquote of age. They're, young people are far more than just the future. They're a critical part of the present too. Oh, I love that. Dude, that's so good. That's perfect. I'm not going to say anything else. That's what I need to <laughs> Um, last thing, I want you to shout out where people can find out more about the Kentucky Student Voice Team, whether that's social media, website, whatever. So we're super active on Twitter um, at KY Stu Voice Team, um, and we have a website at kystudentvoiceteam.org. Um, reach out to us at info at kystudentvoiceteam.org also. We're pretty responsive, I have to say. Good. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for sharing all your stories on this stories podcast. It was such a perfect fit. And I hope everyone listening goes and checks you out. And I know that you all are feeding into the, what our future is going to be. So I'm involved in what you're doing as well. We all are in a, in a sense. And I think that's really cool. So thank but you. thanks so much for the opportunity to share this with you. And um, just know that it is rare for me to be talking uh, without students uh, accompanying me or instead of me but um uh, i'm protecting their bandwidth this month they're doing a lot <laughs> yeah, i'm sure they are and you did a great job telling their stories so thank you very much thank you it's yeah. a pleasure all right everyone that is it thank you for tuning in we hope you were encouraged by the stories of good happening right here in our community i definitely know that i am Make sure you tune in next Monday at 2 p.m. for more good stories and the next installment of the Do Good Radio Hour.